listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following three topics. From Luke chapter 16 and 17, the parable of the enterprising steward, second, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and third, the healing of the ten lepers. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the third gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. The opening of chapter 16 of the Gospel of St. Luke begins with an interesting parable that we find only in this Gospel of the enterprising steward. And as with other of St. Luke's parables, we encounter this theme of riches versus poverty and the fact that riches are not in and of themselves bad or evil. Riches are morally neutral. Even money is morally neutral. But that it is our attachment to earthly goods, to earthly riches, our clinging to them, our selfishness with them, our hoarding them, that prevents us from entering the kingdom of God. So we have this very interesting parable wherein Jesus says, there was a rich man. Now when Jesus in his parable speaks of a rich man, a king, a landowner, he is referring to God. He is referring usually to the Father. And so in this parable we have a rich man, God the Father, who had a steward. And the steward, of course, can be any of us. This particular steward is a worldly kind of steward. Because Jesus is going to use this kind of steward to point out that the worldly sometimes are wiser or more ingenious, more creative in dealing with the problems they encounter than the children of light are. The children of light would be disciples of Christ. So he says that the rich man had a steward and he was about to denounce him for being wasteful with his property. In other words, he's about to be fired. He's going to lose his job. He is going to lose his livelihood. And in losing that, he is going to lose his life, essentially. He will not be able to, to survive well or prosper. So the rich man calls the steward forward. Jesus says, he tells him, what is this I have been hearing about you? Draw up an account of your stewardship. He says, you are not going to be my steward any longer. In other words, he is about to have everything stripped from him or taken away for his abuse of the rich man's goods, for his dishonesty, 
Jesus tells us a little later in the parable, he calls him a dishonest steward. So he was dishonest in dealing with, in doing his job and in dealing with the rich man's goods. Now the steward, the steward begins to panic and he says to himself, my master is taking my stewardship from me, what am I to do? Dig, he says, should I go digging? I'm not strong enough. As with all the other parables, whenever Je whatever Jesus says in a parable has meaning for us. We can take the parables to prayer. We can read them slowly, daily, contemplating all the details, all the phrases. There is nothing in a parable that Jesus tells that does not have a great deal of meaning for us that we can extract from it and apply to our lives. So here is this man and he's about to lose everything and he says, should I go to work and do hard labor? I'm not strong enough. As if to say, if we all of a sudden found out we were to lose our discipleship, our stewardship for God, would we be strong enough to save our own life? The answer is no. Jesus says no. He, he admits, I'm not strong enough to do this. I can't. I can't do it. Should I go begging then? He said, I should be too ashamed. Now the shame is because he has already proven himself among his own people to be a dishonest and greedy man. And so if he turns into a beggar, he's already shown that he's a liar and a thief. If he goes asking people for money, asking people if they will take him in, they don't want him around. When he admits that, that because of his own shame, he cannot go begging, he is revealing that he has gotten himself into a bind that he cannot easily get out of. And now he says, he thinks about it and says, ah, I know what I shall do. He says, in order to make sure that when I am dismissed from my office, he says that there will be someone to welcome me into their homes because he will have no way of, of surviving. He decides that he will call the master's debtors to him. Now he would have been, as a steward of this rich man's property, he would have been in a position, as others like him were in the ancient world, where they could buy and sell, they could trade with the master's goods. They could give a loan to someone. They could sell one goods and give that person a bill of sale. Now a steward of a rich man, it was customary, it was considered legitimate for this person in doing this work with the master's goods to take a fair commission. In fact, the commission or the interest on the loan would have been his legitimate salary. That was the way he earned a living. Tax collectors had a similar kind of situation. The problem was with the avarice, the dishonesty. The problem is that he was gouging people. He was lying. He was a thief. He was not trustworthy. And all of a sudden now, because all these people are upset with the man he works for. He's going to lose his job. So he says, I know what I will do. I will begin to call in my master's debtors. He calls the first and he says, how much do you owe my master? The first one says, a hundred measures of oil. He says, sit down, take your bond, take your bill, your invoice, sit down and write 50. Then he calls in the next one. He says, how much do you owe my master? He says, he owes him a hundred measures of wheat. He says, take your bond, sit down, and write 80. Now what he is doing in all probability 
is forfeiting the salary that he had plans to take. The other person had already agreed that they owed the master the hundred measures of wheat or the hundred measures or jars of oil. But the steward knew what he was going to extract from this. And it reveals if in fact it is the 50, and it probably was, and the 20 in the case of the wheat, he was a very greedy man, a dishonest man. If, because the steward has become rich, if he is giving up his salary and in addition paying something to his boss out of his own riches, he is being enterprising in dealing with the problem. Why? Because as Jesus tells us, he is doing this. Those debtors will now feel indebted to him for reducing the agreed upon amount. And so what happens is the master, Jesus tells us, praised the dishonest steward for his astuteness, for his prudence, for his being enterprising. And then Jesus goes on to say that for the children of the world, and so he's speaking of this certain, this greed, this dishonesty, this grabbing, this hoarding and clinging, for the children of the world are more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the children of light. In the end, the steward gets credit for being enterprising, for taking the initiative to do something so that he will win friends for himself because he is about to lose everything. And he wants to have friends that will take him in, that will, will help him out. Jesus goes on then to say further, and in regard to the parable, he says, And so I tell you this, use money, tainted thing that it is, to win you friends. Money in and of itself is, it's not good or bad. Money is morally neutral, but it's our attitude towards money. It is how we use money, how we handle money, that makes it, that renders it morally good or bad in the case of each individual person. Jesus uses in his teaching the example of money on the one hand because money is, money is one of earth's, let's say, riches. It's not a true rich, it's something to, to assist man in carrying out his transactions in society. But money is representative of riches in that more than many of the other riches, goods, things of earth, of this life, money is hoarded, desired, loved by people. Money is seen as power. It's equated with honor, esteem, rank, promotion. Money can do things for people. People who have a lot of money, they live as if they're free to do as they will to live as they will. They can do what they want, go where they want, have what they want. So in that sense, more than the other things of the earth, money corrupts man. So Jesus uses the word mammon. We get this teaching of Christ about mammon, that we cannot love both God and mammon. Mammon would have been the Latin word. It, it has a Latin derivative. A Latin word meaning riches. It would have been translated from the earlier Greek from an earlier Greek or even Aramaic word for riches. But it's interesting that in the ancient sense of mammon, if we could 
know it in the Aramaic sense, for example, it speaks about that which one trusts. And so Jesus gives us this example of money as riches which corrupt and which are so sought after, so esteemed in this life. And he says, money, tainted thing as it is, he says, you can use even that to win you friends and thus make sure when it fails you, whether it's money or any of the earthly riches or goods, so that when these earthly riches fail us, we will have friends that will welcome us into our eternal dwellings. We come back to this, this idea that with regard to the social justice, the principles of social justice that the church so often teaches about, she has developed a whole theology of social doctrine really since about the 19th century because, of course, the, the Industrial Revolution changed the way that man looked upon other men, upon, upon industry, upon production and the consumption of goods, society, man's place in society, labor, all of these things. So the church, especially in the last 200 years, has developed a lot of her social doctrine. But all of these things, these principles, were in place in Scripture. They're in the Gospels. They're written into the Gospels. They're foundational principles which Christ himself has given us and revealed. And so, when we speak about the earthly goods, as Jesus tells us in so many places, they are to be used by us, but oriented toward God. To the extent that we use the earthly goods to win for us an eternal treasure, that is to have true wisdom as children of the light. But Jesus points out that the worldly, think of how the worldly, so often people are so caught up with money and business and economics, they will spend themselves, their time and energy, planning and figuring how to grow in their wealth, how to do things. They become very savvy, not only with the earthly goods, but in their dealings with people. And Jesus says, they do this for what? For earthly goods. And he says, and the children of the light, we have placed in our hands earthly goods, but we have the truths, the greater riches, the, the holy things of God. And there is something about us that we sort of sit back, we're lackadaisical. We don't have that same kind of zeal, that same kind of prudence, that same kind of initiative, that same kind of hunger to use these things to build an eternal treasure for ourselves. It's not to our credit, as Jesus points out. He goes on to say then, anyone who is trustworthy in little things, money is a little thing. All the earthly goods, in a sense, are little things. And he says, if we are trustworthy in little matters, with little things, we will be trustworthy in greater also. But anyone who is dishonest in little things is dishonest in greater also. People who are dishonest with earthly goods, dishonest with money, they're dishonest in the greater things, the spiritual things. They're dishonest in all of these things. And then he goes on to say, if you, if then you are not trustworthy with money, tainted thing that it is, who will trust you with genuine riches? If we cannot be trusted with the things of the created order that God has placed in our grasp 
and made us stewards of. How can we be trusted with genuine riches, the things of God, the spiritual things? He goes on, if you are not trustworthy with what is not yours, who will give you what is your very own? Well, what is ours exactly? Strictly speaking, nothing. Not even our own lives. We belong to God. We are created by Him. We belong to Him. We are destined for life in Him. But there is another way in which God entrusts to man the whole created order and entrusts to man his own life in a way. It is tied to our freedom that God allows us to not only freely collaborate with him in his plan for us and for the world, but we have the freedom to determine our own destiny. It's that beautiful concept of self-determining of the human person that, that John Paul II so frequently talked about. By our free will, we can shape our own life by the choices we make and how, and how we handle things. So in heaven, if we prove to be good stewards, trustworthy stewards, God will then give us what is our own. We will come into full possession, in a sense, in heaven of ourselves. We begin to do that on earth because those who are good stewards of life, the things that God gives us in this life, become masters, the kind of master we're supposed to be. We become, for example, by mortifying our inordinate attachments, we become master of our own life. We, we crush out the vices of our life and we replace them with virtues. And we become, we are self-mastered in a sense. In heaven, scripture speaks of how we will possess God. No one will ever in a strict sense possess God. And yet God speaks of this mystery whereby we shall know God as he is. We shall possess him. We shall live in God and God in us. And so, with that happening, we come into full ownership of our own property. This is why in the Old Testament, God is always telling Israel that I have a promised land for you. I have given it to you. I am bringing you into that promised land. In a sense, that promised land is us in body and soul. And we will come into full possession of that when we are possessed fully by God, when we allow ourselves to be possessed fully by God. It's very profound what Jesus is saying here when he speaks of this trustworthy stewardship in light of God's plan. If we are trustworthy in small things, and basically that's most of what we deal with in this life, the great things are the mysteries of Christ we have been entrusted with. We are created by him to be entrusted with, to be given, to come into what God wants to be our very own, as Jesus says. He finishes his teaching by saying, no servant can be slave of two masters. He says, he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be attached to one and despise the other. He says, no, you cannot be slave of both God and money. Again, that idea, mammon. We cannot be slave to any of the riches or goods of the world. We are created for God, to love God above all things, to love God alone, and to love others in God. And so, if there is anything on earth 
that we love more than God, we will end up despising God. There are people who say they believe in God and they love God, and yet they live lives where they are so attached to things, so attached to certain forms of sin. In spite of this, they would not say openly, I despise God. And the problem is that it's more subtle than that. When people deeply love and are attached to any of the things of this life, what happens is that they end up despising the virtue of religion. They despise certain of the virtues. They are put off by them. They despise the church, the teachings of the church, the existence of the church, the authority of the church. So in these ways, they end up despising God, although they may not think consciously that they despise God directly. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the parable of the enterprising steward, and then she will be moving into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And now, back to Dr. George. In the social doctrines of the church, there are three, briefly, three basic facets, as the church tells us in the catechism. And these are what we have to keep in mind in being good stewards of the things of God. The first is the respect due to every human person on the face of the earth. This means every person in the human race, because we are all, as human beings, created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, we must train ourselves to look upon our neighbor, this means everybody and anybody, as another self, as another self, and to act accordingly. Secondly, there is a fundamental equality and also differences among all the people on the face of the earth and every time and place. We are equal in freedom and dignity. We are equal because we have the same origin, God, and because we have the same human nature. We are made body and soul. We all have a rational soul, and we all have the same destiny. We are all redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we are all called to participate in the same beatitude. This makes us fundamentally equal. At the same time, we all have differences, but these are part of God's plan. Now, no one coming into the world, no one going through life has everything that he needs, everything that he needs in order to develop his bodily and spiritual life. We need others. We know there are differences tied to age and physical strength, for example, to intellectual and moral aptitudes, to the talents and gifts we are given, to the distribution of wealth. And as the Church tells us, all of this is part of the mystery of God. It's part of God's plan on earth. First of all, God is bringing us into the communion of persons. But by giving some more of something and others less, He is inviting us to learn the law of love. Every single person here, hearing this, has more of certain gifts, talents, or capacities than other people 
who are around us. God has ordained it this way. Likewise, every one of us has less of other things so that we need to turn to others. We need to receive from others. And in this way, we are actually receiving from God. This is why when we get to the third question, gratitude is so, so tied to this. It's so essential. So all of this is part of God's plan, and it is tied also to the third aspect of social doctrine, which is human solidarity. We hear a lot of this, especially in the second half of the 20th century. Solidarity is articulated in terms of friendship, friendship among all persons, and social charity. Human solidarity, this unity, this recognizing self in the other, it's tied to the equality and differences among mankind, and is tied to that inviolable respect due to every human person. So, in knowing how to be good stewards, we have to understand these basic principles, which you can read more about in the Catechism. Understanding these, we will understand how to be proper stewards of riches, and in particular, money. And if we lack understanding of these, we are going to fail in this. St. Luke, it is interesting, tells us immediately after Jesus' teaching on money and on mammon, the Pharisees, he writes, who love money, heard all this that Jesus had said about being trustworthy and about the use of money. And he says they jeered at him, they scoffed at him, they mocked him. He said to them, you are the very ones who pass yourselves off as upright people, upright in people's sight, but God knows your hearts. And this, of course, is going to lead us into the next question, because God knows what is going on in our hearts when we deal with our fellow human beings. He says, God knows what's going on in your hearts, for what is highly esteemed in human eyes is loathsome in the sight of God. What is pleasing in the sight of God is those who allow the law of Christ, the law of the gospel, to penetrate their hearts, and they carry that out in their lives. Jesus goes on to tell a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's also unique to the Gospel of Luke, but what is interesting about this parable is that it is unique in that Jesus gives the poor man, the beggar, a name, Lazarus. It makes the, the parable seem as if it is a story, an event that actually happened. The Church Fathers tell us a number of things about this. Again, every detail in Jesus' parables is significant. The fact that Jesus chooses to give a name has probably a number of meanings. On the one hand, Jesus is revealing God's tender, personal love for the downtrodden in life, the poor and suffering, as if to say that they are personally present to him by name, and that he is even, in a sense, approving that humble existence, that they humbly accept the suffering of this life and put their hope in God. The name Lazarus means one who is assisted. And in a sense, Jesus is saying that he is assisted. He is not assisted on earth. He is not assisted by the rich man, but he is upheld by God. He is assisted by God and truly assisted in the end because he ends up in the bosom of Abraham. 
he receives salvation. So he is assisted by God. But there is something else that that St. Cyril tells us about this that is of a great deal of interest to us, and is the fact that in the Jewish tradition, in ancient Jewish writings, there was truly a man by the name of Lazarus, who is well known in the city of Jerusalem, who is known for his extreme poverty and sickness, and who would lie in the streets at the doorways of people, begging for anything, a bit of bread, a bit of water, a little bit of help. And Jesus, knowing this, uses the name Lazarus because it must have pricked at the consciences of the people who were hearing this parable. The rich man in the parable is simply a sign. He's symbolic. Jesus, in teaching about hell and eternal damnation, does not speak of any specific people there. The church, in her 2,000-year tradition, has never said that a particular person is in hell. We can speak of evil people, people who live evil lives, because we, we judge evil for what it is. We can judge evil acts. We cannot judge people. So, so the church, in spite of the fact that she can speak of the evil of King Herod, the evil of Pontius Pilate, the evil of Judas Iscariot, we draw no conclusion on the eternal life of that soul if those people were saved or if they ended up in hell. Jesus speaks frequently about the reality of hell, the eternal torment of hell, not to frighten us, to warn us. He wants us to live this life with our eyes open. He wants us to understand that there are grave consequences with regard to grave things we do in this life when we when we gravely contravene, violate the law of God by refusing charity and justice to our neighbor. And we have to take this seriously. We have to be sober in thinking about this. And Jesus presents this parable and says there was a rich man who dressed in purple. Purple is symbolic of royalty, of kingship, of a moneyed person, a wealthy person, of fine linen. He feasted magnificently every day. At his gate, he says, at his gate, in the sight of all, in the sight of man, it would be as if there was someone who would hang out in front of our home day after day in his or her need as this physical reminder that he is there. And Jesus is saying that we all have these people in our lives. God places them in our sight, so to speak. We know they're there. And it speaks to our conscience. At the end of time, when we are held accountable by God in matters that speak about the grave violations against God in our heart, we are not going to be able to claim to God that we never knew. He will show us what it is we knew in our conscience because we have the, because we have the voice of Christ in our conscience. And so he is saying, this man knew. It's as if God is saying, and I know, he was there, he knew it, you knew it, I knew it, we all saw and knew this, and it went on day after day. And the poor man called Lazarus was covered with sores. He longed to fill himself with what fell from the rich man's table. At the end, Jesus says, the poor man and the rich man both die, and the angels carry the poor man into the bosom of Abraham. Now, the rich man also dies, and he goes into the torment of Hades. 
Now this word Hades, which we also translate as hell, Hades is actually a Greek word. It is like the Hebrew word Sheol, which we encounter in the Old Testament. Hades, Sheol, the abode of the dead, hell sometimes we call it in the Apostles' Creed when we say that Jesus descended into hell. We are not saying in this case that he had descended into the hell of eternal damnation. Jesus descended into hell, that's the translation for Hades, which means the abode of the dead, where all the people who had died up to the time of Christ, the wicked and the just alike, had to stay because the gates of heaven were closed. They remained closed until Jesus rose from the dead into heaven and the gates of heaven were open. So Hades refers to the abode, so to speak, the abode of the dead where they all were there together. But their final destiny, although it was decided, it's decided for each of us upon our death, we all receive a particular judgment. And that judgment is either for salvation, which we can enter immediately and go into heaven, or following a purification, and we call that purgatory, because there are many, many people, probably most, on the face of the earth who, when they die, are not yet prepared for the beatific vision. They're not holy enough. They are not holy as God is holy. And God, in his mercy, completes that purification. And that's what we call purgatory. But the souls who suffer that purification are among the saved. And we call them the holy souls in purgatory because they are among the holy people of God. But their particular judgment is very different from those whose judgment is hell and eternal damnation. And in this case, Jesus tells this parable of how the poor man, upon his death, was taken into the bosom of Abraham. Now the gates of heaven are still closed, so they're both in Hades. And he says, the rich man was in torment in Hades. He looked up and saw Abraham a long way off. He looked up and he saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus in his embrace. To be in the bosom of Abraham is language that the Jews understood. It meant that he rested, he rested in the arms of the patriarch. Because remember, it is to Abraham that the promise is given. And so to rest in the embrace of Abraham is to rest, in a sense, among the just. So the uh, man cries out, he says, Father Abraham, take pity on me. He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. He wants help. And Abraham tells him, there is nothing I can do. There is an intraversible abyss between us and you. We cannot cross to you, and you cannot cross over to us. Now, Jesus is using this language to speak of that abyss, that great gulf between heaven and hell, between the saved and the damned, and that there is nothing that anyone can do to be able to, to cross it and to give comfort to those who are in agony. So then the rich man goes on to say, I beg you, in that case, if you cannot come to me, he said, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers and tell them about this place of torment. Tell them, give them warning, so that they will not come to this place and live in torment as I do. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Now he tells them what God had been telling Israel all along. 
You have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. Because what they said was the word of God. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. The rich man replied. He says, oh no. Now, first of all, he already knows. Because the rich man had Moses and the prophets and he didn't listen. There were many in Israel who had Moses and the prophets who did not listen. And he says, if someone would just come to them from the dead, as if to say, to rise from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham says, no. Now, Jesus is already pointing to the fact that he will rise from the dead. And so, in fact, he will fulfill this. The rich man thinks, if someone would just give us proof, the problem for the person who has no faith, for the person who is confirmed in evil, there is no proof. There is nothing that is going to change the hardened heart. That person has to repent and conform his will to the word of God. So here we live 2,000 years after, after one has been sent. Jesus rose from the dead. And do we recall from the Gospel of St. Matthew how after Jesus, after there was an earthquake upon his death and the rock split and the whole uh, earth was shaking, there were witnesses who saw people rising from the tombs around Jerusalem. They saw this. Did it change all of their lives? No. 2,000 years later, we have the witness of the resurrection. And there are people all over the world who don't believe. As Jesus says, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if he rises from the dead, even if he visits us. God sent his son to us. And still there are many who refuse to believe. The point is that it requires an act of faith, a decision to embrace the good, to do the good. And that decision is ours. God gives us free will. He will never coerce us. He will never force us. It's part of the mystery of, of free will. God does give us a conscience. God calls all of us, every person he creates, to live in spirit and truth. For this reason, he writes upon the heart of every human person the moral law. We all know it. Even if we haven't heard the gospel per se preached to us, we all have the law of God written on our heart. We all can know right from wrong, and we can choose what is good. And when we choose what is evil, we know it in our conscience. Because the voice of Christ, which cannot be eradicated from man, will speak that truth to the person and remind us and call us then to repentance and to, to embracing the good. So while we, on the one hand, are bound to God in our conscience, we are all absolutely bound in conscience to God. And that can't be changed. That voice can't be changed. We can't change the voice, eradicate it. That will be to our approval or condemnation on Judgment Day. In spite of this, this guarantee, so to speak, in our conscience, God will never force us. He will never coerce us. The choice is ours. Every person created by God must choose, in a sense, his own destiny in God. He has the freedom to accept the life God wills for us or reject it. Even the angels, the angels are persons. They are spiritual persons. They're pure spirit. We are human persons. When we say that we are human persons, we have rational souls as the angels do, but we are flesh and spirit. We are body and spirit. The angels are pure spirit. But everyone has to make a decision based on his or her free will 
for or against God. The angels had to do this at the beginning of time. In one sense, God cannot give us proof that will satisfy created reason because God is infinitely beyond. He surpasses created reason. As enlightened as the angels were, God called them to embrace a wisdom and a goodness that they had to either say yes to or they said no to because it didn't seem to be good enough to them, trustworthy enough to them, something that they could say yes with their whole being. And that's why there were those who, when God showed them his plan for man and his plan in his son, they, they said, I will not serve. They could not, they could not grasp, they, they refused to embrace the wisdom of God. Every person, angels and human beings alike, we are all created in the image and likeness of God. Every person, God gives the free will to say yes to him or to say no. And in doing so, we determine our own eternal destiny. This is the thing Jesus is so clear in telling us that he wants us to understand what is at stake in our yes or in our no in this life. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the healing of the ten lepers. And now, back to Dr. George. St. Luke in chapter 17 tells us of the event of Jesus encountering ten lepers when he is passing from Jerusalem along the borderlands, the borderlands, this is an important detail, of Samaria and Galilee. Unlike the parables that we discussed regarding questions one and two, this is not a parable. This is an actual event in the public ministry of Jesus. Now he is traveling along the, the borderland, joining Samaria and Galilee, and ten lepers come up to him. Now, what we know, and the Church Fathers would have said it, there's every indication that nine of them were Jews, but we know for a fact from what Jesus tells us, one, the one who returns to him is a Samaritan. It is most interesting that it is Jews and a Samaritan who not only are traveling together, but obviously living together. They would have been in the same community. As if to say, because remember, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They had such hostility for each other that they would have nothing to do with one another, they wouldn't live near one another, they wouldn't even acknowledge the existence of the other, so to speak. And here we have Jews and Samaritans living together. Why? Because they're lepers and they live in a leper colony. When man is reduced to, to a lowly estate, where we're sort of stripped of all the things that usually contribute to our pride and our vanity and all of these things, and we're stripped of that, so we're reduced to live in the simplicity of our human nature. We end up looking upon every other person as another self, as our neighbor. These Jews and Samaritans could live together because of their suffering, because they were both rejected by their own communities. Now we need to go back to the Old Testament for a moment and talk about this matter of leprosy. In the book of Leviticus, the whole central section is really 
it's part of the, the code, the laws of Israel for how the priesthood was de- to deal with the clean and the unclean. This notion that there were those living among the Jews who were clean. Now we can talk about ritual purity or ritual cleanliness and ritual uncleanliness or uncleanness, but it was also tied to many of the things in the natural or physical world. So at the center of the book of Leviticus, we, we hear what God tells the priest to do in dealing with people who had physical maladies and diseases and illnesses because they had to be concerned about, about contagious diseases. So that if a person developed cysts or sores or scabs or a rash or a discoloration of the skin or some kind of a growth or a depression of the skin, any of these kinds of things, they had to go and present themselves to the priest and the priest, there were, they had certain prescriptions, and sometimes they were things that would pass, could be healed, and they would tell them to, to do certain things and then return in three days or seven days. And in returning, they would then look and see if the person could be declared clean. If not, they would maybe tell them to continue and come back in another seven days. There were things that, could, that were curable, but they also understood there were things that were incurable and highly contagious, and leprosy would have been one of those. So once a person was declared to be a leper, that person was really, as far as they were concerned, forever unclean. And because they wanted to protect the community from contagion, they had to live outside the camp by law. Not only did they have to live in their own little communities away from all of the other people in Israel, but if they ever ventured to go close to where there were people, if they traveled, for example, or wanted to go into the outskirts of a marketplace, they had to, they had to holler out, unclean, unclean, to anyone that would come close to them so that that person would be alerted and stay away from them. And no one, as with the, the lepers, the lepers just, their condition just deteriorated. It was incurable. It deteriorated until they finally wasted away. And it was considered a very grotesque disease, especially in its advanced stages. Now, 10 lepers, who would have come from probably the same colony, approached Jesus, and St. Luke says they stood some way off, not only out of respect for Jesus, but out of respect for the law. They had to do this. They couldn't approach Jesus. But certainly, word had reached them that Jesus was healing lepers, That would have been such an amazing thing for them to hear, to heal a leper, that he had raised the dead to life, that he had expelled demons. There was nothing Jesus could not do in hope. I mean, they want this too for themselves. So they they begin to approach him and they holler out, Jesus, Master. They are, there is an act of faith in that very fact, an act of faith in, in proclaiming the name Jesus, They say, Master, which is an equivalent of Lord, Lord, take pity on us, they say. Jesus saw them, and as we know from how Jesus handles people, anyone who makes an act of faith in him, Jesus blesses, he heals, he gives to that person whatever is needed. When Jesus saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, Scripture does not say he healed them. And then he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. He said simply, go and show yourselves to the priest. It's very interesting because they haven't in that moment been healed yet. 
He is asking of them a deeper act of faith. They came to him in hope and yes, in faith. But he is saying, go, go on your way. They all respond to that. They all turn and go because scripture says they were all healed on the way. There are many things probably that Jesus is revealing in this. First of all, in order for them to be declared clean, in a sense, if they understood the law, by having Jesus tell them to go and show themselves to the priest is already telling them that he is going to give them what, what they ask for. Because they would have had to, the very next step would have had to have been to go and show themselves to the priest so they could be declared clean and so they could be reintegrated with the community of, of God's people. So he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, the lepers came from families among themselves. The people knew who the lepers were. They had people among their own relations, among their friends who were stricken with leprosy. And so they, they knew these people. And in, unless their health deteriorated to a, to a point where they were so disfigured, they, they would have known these people from a distance and recognized them. And so the priests would have known at least some of these lepers, if not all, perhaps not the Samaritan, but they would have known these lepers. Jesus is proclaiming again his power to the Jewish elders, to the Sanhedrin, to the priests. He is proclaiming by healing 10 lepers. He is doing something for the priests. He is doing something for the lepers. He is doing something for all of Israel. And so they go. But realizing that they are cleansed, only one of them, Jesus says, St. Luke says, turns and comes back praising God at the top of his voice. He threw himself prostrate at the feet of Jesus. He goes up and approaches Jesus, perhaps even touches his feet, perhaps kisses his feet, and thanked him. The man was a Samaritan. This led Jesus to say, we're not all ten made clean. The other nine, where are they? It seems that no one has come back to give praise to God except this foreigner. And then he says to him, stand up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. The man who thanks God receives a far greater blessing, a far greater healing than those who were simply physically healed. We think that that is an amazing thing because we all, we, we understand that the importance of miraculous physical healings. But here and elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is revealing to us there is so much more God wants us to have. He wants to give us. It requires faith, and tied to that faith is acknowledgement of God in praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and blessing. And that's why, of course, we have in our readings for this particular question, readings on the importance of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is absolutely critical to us in our growth in holiness, in our life in God. God demands thanksgiving of man, not because God needs it. God doesn't need thanksgiving. We do. We need thanksgiving. When we thank God, and thanksgiving is tied to adoration, to blessing of God, to praise of Him, to acknowledgement of God, because in thanking another, we are, in a sense, humbling ourselves by saying that we have received something we needed, something important to us that we couldn't give ourselves. Even by thanking another person, we are, in a sense, thanking God because He has seen to our needs 
through this other person. By thanking others, and particularly by thanking God, we are transformed interiorly. Something changes in us when we thank God. If every day when we entered into prayer, or every evening, as we said, our evening prayer or our night prayer, if we would pause and take just a couple of minutes and thank God for the particular blessings of our day, something happens interiorly in us when we do that. Now, God will teach us Thanksgiving is, is very important. As he says, as the psalmist says, God is speaking through the psalmist, a sacrifice of thanksgiving is what honors me. He says, we always want to bring these things to God. He says, a sacrifice of thanksgiving is what honors me. In our spiritual life, we begin, we begin to understand this. It makes sense to us, and it's not difficult for us to thank God for the, for the blessings that he gives us. But God calls us into a a deeper kind of thanksgiving. And it is this. It is based upon our faith in the perfect goodness and wisdom and power of God. So that we ask ourselves, do we have the faith to thank God even for those things that are difficult for us, that don't go well for us, for our failures? for our losses. And at first we're taken aback by this because we say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would I thank him for that? But nothing falls outside the providence of God. Nothing falls outside the permissive will of God. He is almighty. So whatever thing that happened to us that we don't particularly like, that happened only because God allowed it or permitted it. And God can permit nothing unless he wills and will bring a greater good out of it. So that through our failure, can we trust God enough and go so far as to thank Him? Because though we may not see or understand now, we believe so much in His goodness and in His wisdom that we can already thank Him, even though we may never know in this life what it is that He gave us through that difficulty. That's why the psalmist says a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God is speaking through the psalmist. A sacrifice of thanksgiving is what honors me. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, speaking of this, of our, of our detachment from the goods and successes of this life, he says that if we truly, if we truly entered into this relationship with God in our daily life, we would no longer prefer riches over poverty. We would not prefer health to sickness. We would not prefer success to failure. We would accept all things with equanimity of soul, knowing that they came from the hand of a good God. Now that requires faith of us. But if we don't have, if we feel that we don't have it now, all we need to do is to try it using our will to make such an act of faith to offer to God such an act of thanksgiving the next time something happens, even if it's something like we're working on a vice in our life and we're praying to God for the strength to overcome this and to put virtue in its place. And all of a sudden we're in a situation and we fail miserably. And we feel maybe even abandoned by God. And yet we have to understand we fail because, not because of God, but because of the sin that is in us. 
and to then go outside ourselves or beyond ourselves and say, God, I thank you for letting me see, for letting this happen, and for whatever good you will to come from it. Maybe, maybe he gave us through this an increase of self-knowledge which we needed. Maybe he humbled us because we thought we were more virtuous or stronger than we actually were, and we needed to be humbled before he will exalt us in holiness. There can be all sorts of reasons for it. Even if we don't know the reasons, and God frequently withholds them from us, because it's just like we become like the rich man. If you would only, if you would only show me this, then I could thank you, then I could have faith in you. But that's not, that is not the kind of thing that purifies our faith, hope, and love. What truly elevates those theological virtues in us is when God demands a response of, or invites, a response of faith, hope, and love that we have to make in a pure and naked kind of way. So we thank God for this, not knowing the outcome, not knowing the reasons why, and accepting even the humiliation. That honors God. That honors Him. Because in doing that, we are praising Him for His goodness. We are adoring Him. We are surrendering our lives to Him and saying, I'm totally dependent upon you. And Thank you for that, because you're, you're all good. I know that. You're all mighty. You are all wise. And in saying this, then, God, it, it draws down upon us the mercy of God. Thanksgiving is transformative of the human person. And Jesus is teaching us about this through this beautiful incident where the Samaritan, the Samaritan, the one that, that the Jews might have expected least, to return praising and thanking God, he returns. And for this, Jesus says to him, your faith, your faith has saved you. And he tells him to go in peace. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George will be covering the following three topics from Luke chapter 18 through Luke 19 verse 10. The corrupt judge and the importunate widow. Second, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And third, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.